0: our hearts and minds as Pastor Rex shares today's message. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Grace. We're really glad that you're here today. We come to a story today that I'll bet is the best-known story in the Bible, I mean, it's known not only by believers, but I meet people who are not people of faith per se. Maybe they've not even been in church much and they know about this story. They might not be able to find it, go to chapter and verse, but they know it's in there and they even use it in their language. Locally here in the capital region, we have Samaritan Hospital and Samaritan Counseling Center and other organizations that bear the name of the key protagonist in today's story. He's called the Good Samaritan. And it's really impacted our language. I'll hear people say, well, I did my Good Samaritan deed today, and you know what they mean. They mean that I helped someone across the street, an elderly person perhaps. I I stopped and helped a motorist who was in distress. or, Or I helped talk a colleague through a difficult situation. I did my good Samaritan deed for the day. But while this story is incredibly well known, I'm suggesting to you that that may be a bit of a problem. Because we know it so well, we believe we've been there, done that, We already know everything it has to say. I would challenge you today to listen to this old and well-known story with fresh ears. Because I'm convinced that God wants to give us some fresh insight through this story of the Good Samaritan found in Luke chapter 10 verses 25 to 37. So let's dive in today and see what particular tailor-made message God might have for us through His Word. First of all, let's begin by looking at the question, the question here, because the prelude to this well-known story of the Good Samaritan is actually a question. If your Bible's open there to Luke chapter 10, you can follow along or you can also see it on the screens. Verse 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Push pause right there. Did you notice something a bit paradoxical in his question? What must I do to inherit? Now you tell me, do you really do Anything to inherit something? When you inherit something, it has nothing to do with what you've done. It has a whole lot to do what you're, with what your parents or some other relative or benefactor did for you. They named you in their will. They put you into their good graces and did that for you. It's not about what you've done. Now, the reason I point that out is not to pick on this expert in the law. Because we tend to think the same way today. If you ask the average person out there in the capital region, hey, how can you have eternal life? The very question that this lawyer is probing, do you know what kind of answer they'll give you? I assure you that 98% of the people will say something about how they have to perform. I got to be good enough. I got to earn it. I got to jump through enough religious hoops. I got to do enough deeds. And then maybe, just maybe, my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds and I'll be good enough to get into heaven. If that's the way you believe it's going to happen, you're going about it all wrong. The Bible reveals to us that while yes, there is a moral code to Christianity that God does expect us to live, that's not what our salvation is based on at all. It's not about what we do, it's about what he's done. And there's a big difference between those two. So I feel that's important for us to point out. But this expert in the law is at least asking the right kind of question. Have you ever wondered, how can I live forever? How can I have this abundant eternal life that I hear people talking about and that the Bible speaks of? He's asking a very important question. And if you've ever asked that question, or if you're wondering about it today, let me tell you, God has a word for you. So we go from the question, and Jesus goes on here to give The answer. So let's think about the answer for just a bit. Verse 26 goes on, What is written in the law? He replied, How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Now, what he's doing here is quoting what is called the Shemai in Hebrew. You can read it yourself in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and following. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and so on. And it goes on to describe how we're not only to have this in ourselves, but we're to pass it on to our children. Every good Hebrew person knew the Shemai. So he's simply quoting it and kind of going through that here. You're to love God with all your Heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And then he adds a quote from Leviticus chapter 19. And love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? You see, people of that day were asking this question often, and everybody believed that there is some group of neighbors that we ought to love, but most people drew the circle far too small. Everyone would agree that your family should be in there. Sure, your your family should be right in that inner circle. You should love them as your closest neighbors. And then you might put relatives in there, unless it's Cousin Eddie, who's a little obnoxious. You know, he might get edged out. Or or you would put some of your closest friends in that circle, maybe your neighbors who are kind to you, and people who have really been good to you in life, and you would put those in your inner circle as your neighbor. Everyone would agree with that. But Jesus is about to challenge this guy's categories. You know one of the many things I love about Jesus? He doesn't leave us in our comfort zone. He comes to us where we are. He loves us as we are, but he doesn't leave us where we are. He challenges our categories. He pushes us and makes us feel uncomfortable. Why does he do that? Because he loves us too much to leave us the way we are. He wants to grow us. He has a marvelous design for your life and he loves you too much to allow you to just be comfortable and be stuck for the rest of your life. And so he's giving a real challenge here and he's about to demonstrate that that circle we draw on who our neighbor is that we ought to love and everybody outside that circle we don't have to worry about. We don't have to love them at all. He's about to demonstrate that our circle is way too small. So third, let's look at what he says. It's what we'll call the illustration. And this is the part of the story that most people know really, really well. By the way, many people call this a parable. Jesus never called it a parable. It could be, but it may just be... kind of a real-life story that happened. Because as you're about to see, this was actually a fairly common type occurrence, at least most of the elements of the story in this particular part of the world. In reply, Jesus said, this is verse 30, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest, now just mark that as the most holy, religious, godly, respected person in the entire culture, that's who a priest would be to the average Jewish listener that day. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And no doubt, if you've heard this story preached before, you know that there's all kinds of rationale the priest might have had for passing by. If he had touched a dead body, he himself would have been ritually unclean and unable to perform his priestly duties. Plus, there were all kinds of other dangers inherent, and so for whatever his reason, he kept on going. So, too, a Levite, now pause there. A Levite would be a helper to the priest, This would be the functional person in the temple or the tabernacle who would do the practical things, but he was also greatly respected and revered in this culture. A Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. Now, if someone was just listening along in this story up to this point, they would think they knew where Jesus was going. They would think, That he would, the very next person surely that he brings in is just a good old ordinary Jew. That's what they probably all expected. Just an ordinary Jewish person, just kind of your run of the mill Jewish person and he was going to kind of extol the virtues of Judaism when they're lived out in this way. But Jesus shocked everyone. But uh Samaritan, they would have all recoiled from that. That would be the equivalent today of saying, but a terrorist. Or if you're a conservative, but a liberal. Or if you're a Republican, but a Democrat came along. Or if you're a poor person and you identify that, but a rich guy came along. Whoever you believe definitely wouldn't have the virtue for this. Jesus inserts, and the Samaritans happened to be despised by the Jewish people. They were despised as half-breeds because they had intermarried with other nations. They had built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. They had their own style of worship and so on. So they were despised. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now this story had a setting in a real life situation. The journey from Jerusalem to Jericho was one that was known as treacherous. If you've read any commentary on the story, you know that the road there was winding and it was treacherous and the elevation dropped about 3,600 feet over a period of, or space of about 17 miles or so. It was rough going. And there was an inn, history says, about halfway between. If you had a huge load or maybe you were elderly and couldn't make the journey in a day, there was an inn there about halfway where you could stop, a sort of hotel, and you could relieve yourself there, be freshened up, spend the night, get some food, And have strength to make the rest of the trip the next day. But this particular road was known as kind of a rogue's row. It was strewn with bandits and people waiting to try to rob and kill. And so as Jesus told the story, no doubt the people were really engaged. He describes this man who's robbed, he's beaten, his clothes are taken, he's lying there naked and bleeding, left to die out in the broiling sun. Back in the 1950s, a popular preacher named Roy Angel, that was his name, Roy Angel said there are three attitudes in this story that we can have toward others. And ever since that day, and I'm going to use them now, But ever since that day, preachers by the probably the thousands, honestly, have used these three attitudes that I believe Roy Angel was the one who originated this in the 1950s. First attitude, he said, is what's yours is mine, I'll take it. What's yours is mine, I'll take it. And there are a lot of people in our world today with that attitude. Their attitude is, hey, the world owes me something. I've been gypped in life. I've been cheated. I'm going to grab anything possible that I can from others. I've never shared this publicly, so this will be the first time my family and a handful of others know about this story I'm about to share. But just over a year ago, I was mugged for the first time at gunpoint. I'd never, all my life, I've been in all kinds of big cities, urban areas, country areas, (laughs) suburban areas. I've never been mugged at gunpoint before until then. It was 2017, a Monday, the day after Easter, okay? I was staying in a hotel in Massachusetts, and uh, I'd been working all day. I'd gotten a workout in the hotel, little gymnasium, and I talked to Deb for about 30 minutes, and then I was going to get a bite to eat for dinner. So I went to the restaurant. I just walked there. It was across the parking lot from the hotel. And uh, the parking lot wasn't super well lit. But as I was coming back later that evening, all alone, a man approached me from behind. And when I turned, he pulled out a gun and demanded all of my money. Now, I don't know if this has ever happened to you before, but there's a lot of things that fly through your mind at a moment like that, at least... They did fly through my mind. I I had just worked out before I went to eat, and I was still feeling really good and energetic. And so one of the thoughts I immediately had was, run, run. I thought I may be able to outrun the guy. Uh, My hotel door, the, the front of the hotel was literally 80 yards away. It was all lit up, but no one was around. And so I thought, maybe I can run. And then I thought, well, maybe I just refuse to give him money and see how he reacts. And then I thought, and all this is happening just in seconds, I thought, well, you know, I'm a preacher. I talk for a living. Maybe I can talk him out of this, you know? Maybe I can reason with him. And I kid you not, all those thoughts kind of flew through my mind, literally, probably in a few seconds, but it seemed much, much longer. And as I kind of looked away, wondering what to do, whether I was going to go along with this or not, uh, he became more agitated. He cocked his gun and said, all of your cash now. And he began to scream it. His eyes were darting back and forth, looking for anybody possibly approaching. And in that moment, I thought of Debbie. Now, here's what I thought about Debbie. I thought, if I don't give him the cash... And he doesn't kill me, she will. She will. (laughs) Because I know exactly what she would want me to do in this situation. She would want me to go along with it and live for another day, right? Amen? Because she loves me, she cares about me, she doesn't want me to take a big risk here. And so I thought of that and thought, you know what, I'm going to go along. And so I pulled my wallet slowly out and uh, showed him that I was giving him all the cash Pulled the few dollars I had crumpled up in my pant pocket, gave him that, and he seemed to be satisfied and began to quickly go away. And then I just began to walk the 80 yards to my hotel, and then I thought, what am I doing walking? I ought to run. And so I started running to the hotel entrance, and I, there was an armed police officer there, a security guard, I guess, for the hotel, and I had him contact the police. The police were awesome. They came quickly. They were so professional and so thorough. And I filled out a complete report. Um, But unfortunately, I haven't heard another word about it. Those experiences mark you, don't they? And if you've had traumatic experiences like that, you know what I'm talking about. You dream about it. You kind of live on edge for days or even longer after that. And... uh, you realize this world is not always a safe place. As G. Gordon Liddy said some years ago, the world is a bad neighborhood. So folks, please understand there are people out there, not just bandits and robbers who are out to mug you, but there are people who see you as prey. And their attitude is, what yours is mine, I'll take it. But there's a second attitude in this story, and that is, what's mine is mine, I'll keep it. I think that's an even more common attitude. Income tax records reveal that on the average, politicians who make over $100,000 a year, their tax records reveal that they give less than 1% of their income to charitable causes. That's pretty revealing. What the government to give, but... Don't want to be involved personally in giving. Now, I believe this priest and Levite in the story are not bad people. And most people who have the attitude in real life, what's mine is mine, I'll keep it, are not bad people. You know what they are? They're busy people. They're not bad people. They're busy I'm going to talk a little bit about that next week, so I'll save it for then. But someone has described busy as an acronym, being under Satan's yoke. And the fact is, although they weren't bad people, they had tons of virtue as individuals. Their busyness caused them to actually neglect a person in need. I see myself so often when I read the story of the Good Samaritan. This story is a great mirror, I think, for all of us. I'll never forget the first time I went on a short-term mission trip and saw people literally living on the edge of existence in the streets. I'd never seen that before. I was a sophomore in college at the time. First short-term mission trip, 10 of us piled into a big van and drove from Carson Newman College down to New Orleans where we spent Our spring break doing this mission thing. And I was one of the designated preachers on the trip. And uh, on one of the Sunday mornings that we were there, we went to Vucari Baptist Church down in the French Quarter. And we got there a little bit late, but instead of allowing us to kind of prepare and get ready for the service, and I was going to be preaching, uh, the pastor had us go out in the streets. I think he wanted us to get a little orientation to the community. And wow, our eyes were bugging out. We went out into the streets of the French Quarter that morning, all around the church there, which is on Vukary Street. And I'll never forget seeing a man roughly 50 years old, passed out on the street, a whiskey bottle right by his head, an empty whiskey bottle, his face literally right on the asphalt. I'll never forget that because it was right after Mardi Gras, and the streets were just filthy with litter and, and dirt. It was, just, it was just filthy. And his face was right on that. And that just, that just got me when I, when I saw that. But we were out there trying to get people. Literally, the pastor wanted us to get people to come in. But can I tell you something? I'm just going to be honest here. Moment of candor. When I was out there that day and saw this guy... Sad as it was, this will show you how little mercy I had, there were several thoughts that went through my mind. One was, I've got my best suit that I own on. I can't mess it up. A second thought I had was, I don't have time to be out here doing this. Doesn't he know that in 20 minutes, I've got to be inside that church there preaching about the love of God and compassion? Doesn't he know that? The third thought I had is, look, this isn't really my environment. This is not my city. I'm a guest here. And the fourth thought I had is, oh, my goodness, shouldn't somebody else be doing this? And probably behind all of those kind of thoughts was probably this thought. If somebody's dumb enough to get themselves that drunk, why do they expect busy people to stop and help them? I am so ashamed of those thoughts. But I'm being honest, that's what I thought that morning as the preacher, the pastor, had us out there in the streets trying to compel people to come in to our little gospel service that we were going to have. But that's the way you begin to think when your attitude is, what's mine is mine, I'm going to keep it. Now, you may have heard me say this before, folks, but we all need to get a handle on this. God, if he's brought us to this church family, whatever campus we may be a part of, he's brought us here for a purpose. He's given you gifts. He's designed you in a certain way that he wants you to be an active contributor to all that he's up to in and through this body. That's so important for us to understand. Let me put it to you a little bit differently. God's given me a gift, but it's not for me. It's for you. God's given you a gift, but it's not for you. It's for me. We need each other. We need the gifts that God has put in us. And if I don't use my gift, you're getting cheated. And if you don't use your gifts for the glory of God, I am getting cheated. The attitude, what's mine is mine, I'll keep it, is deadly in the local church. But there's a third attitude that Roy Angel talked about, and that is, what's mine is yours, I'll share it. William Barclay, the British scholar, put it this way, in a world that's bent on getting, the Christian must be bent on giving. Because we know that what we keep, we lose, but what we give, we have. And this attitude, this third attitude, what's mine is yours, I'll share it, is built on the solid biblical foundation that God is the owner of everything and I'm simply managing. And that frees you up then to be more generous with your time, with the use of your gifts, with getting involved in situations where you can help. And you begin to realize that your neighbor is anyone, anyone, with a legitimate need some years ago in california at the pasadena convention center on that day there were 600 aspiring lawyers taking the state bar exam so the pressure was high there was a lot of tension in the place these 600 aspiring attorneys trying to pass the bar exam for the state of california And as they were (coughs) taking this, one of them, a 50-year-old man who was taking the test, began to go into cardiac arrest. He literally was in pain. He was in agony. He began to fall down out of his chair. But out of the 600 participants, only two stopped to help him. Their names were Eunice Morgan and John Leslie. And so they stopped taking their test. They gave the man CPR until the paramedic team arrived and uh, they lost about 40 minutes. But, citing policy, the test supervisor refused to allow John and Eunice uh, to make up the 40 minutes that they had lost. And so, they were way behind. In fact, the State Bar Office of Admission backed their decision stating, and I quote, If these two want to be lawyers, they should learn a lesson about priorities. And this was covered in all the San Francisco Bay Area newspapers. The public outcry was incredible. And long story short, finally the state of California reneged and allowed John Leslie and Eunice Morgan to actually take the test again and have the additional 40 minutes. Now, I have a number of friends here at the church who are attorneys, great people, men and women who serve as lawyers in the area, and I have a number of attorney friends out there in the community, in the Capital District, and some of them are some of the finest Christians I know. I happen to believe that if they were in that situation, taking that test, they would have, I believe my buddies would have stopped and helped that guy. I believe they also would have charged him for his time. Um, Just kidding. I tell you, lawyers get it bad, don't they? Even the preacher, even the preacher is busting their chops. But it's a lesson for us to learn. Would we have helped out? Jesus told a story in Matthew 25. He said, then the righteous will answer him. This is the judge. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Point, God shows up in little ways And we have things that we would consider small opportunities, but we need to do them faithfully for the glory of God. As Helen Keller said, I long to accomplish a great and noble task, but it is my chief duty and joy to accomplish humble tasks as though they were great and noble. So as we wrap up today, I want to try to impress three words on you as we wrap up and get ready in just a few minutes to go. Three words that I believe are vital if we're going to really get the spirit and the essence of what the Lord would want us to take away from this amazing, and as I said earlier, perhaps the best-known story in all the Bible. Because you see, Jesus has said, let your light so shine before people. Let it shine that they may see your good deeds. And what did he say? And praise you, right? No, no, no. Let your light so shine before people that they may see your good deeds and praise grace fellowship, right? Right? No, 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 no. We're to live our lives in such a way with such compassionate and merciful hearts that people would see our good deeds. Jesus said, and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So three words as we prepare to go. First, and within these, I'm really talking here about the challenge, the challenge. Because as Jesus tells the story, he doesn't end there. In verse 36, he asks the guy, gets right in his face the way I envision it, in a loving but challenging way and says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Who was the most genuine neighbor here? And the expert in the law can't even bring himself to utter the word Samaritan. They're that despised in his mind. So in verse 37, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. He can't even say Samaritan. The one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Jesus is saying, don't be concerned about who your neighbor is. Get proactive. Reach out, everyone is your neighbor. So what are those three words that we can go away with? The first word is compassion. There's an interesting Greek word used here that describes the Samaritan. Splotna is the Greek word. It's a word for the intestines. It means that he was moved in his guts is what it literally says. He was moved in the core of his being. He was moved right down to the inner core of his soul. He felt that compassion. I get worried about myself sometimes. Because I could be watching TV, sipping coffee, munching on some kind of food. And I can see hungry kids around the world, their faces across my TV screen... And I just keep on munching my food and sipping my coffee. It doesn't bother me. You know why? Because too often I have compassion overload. I hope you don't get that. Guard against compassion overload. And one of the best ways I know to do that is just to intentionally involve yourself in some things where you're helping other people. A number of us next Saturday are going to do that in the Troy Spring Refresh Opportunity. I think some of you heard about this. Uh, All the spaces are filled, thank God. It's going to be four churches coming together, ourselves, Terra Nova, Loudonville Community Church, and the church on Newtown Road. Four sister churches just coming together. We limited the number of people that we would involve in this. There's going to be almost 200 people total, and we're going to Come to the north side of Troy there and just begin to serve the people. It's going to be awesome. And that kind of thing keeps me stoked up with compassion. It helps me to see how that what I'm doing is making a difference. And I urge you to get involved in ways like that as new opportunities come along in the future. And as you see needs around you day by day. Compassion. The second word is action. Because feeling compassion isn't enough. It's not enough just to feel their pain. We've got to get involved with people. Now, what would that look like for you? Let's get real practical. I think it should start with your marriage if you're married. It's amazing how kind and compassionate we can be and merciful to people out there. And sometimes we can be rather prickly with those in our own household. Start it at home, okay? Practice some kindness. Literally, just kindness. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Practice it in your home. And then I would urge you, in applying this story and getting involved in action, I would urge you to expand your sphere of relationships. In fact, God has been impressing a word on me lately that we need to become a little bit more messy as a church. Say, so what's your vision, pastor? We need to get messy. That's my vision. Now, that doesn't sound real safe, does it? When you get messy, it means you're getting involved in the lives of people. But listen, here's what I think is our problem as a church. No, virtually no one has ever said to me that Grace Fellowship is not a friendly church. I've almost never heard that. And the f- handful of people I've heard it from over 25 years, I think were maybe a little imbalance honestly seriously this is a friendly church but are you still with me but we're only surface friendly hello hello you see I look at some of you women and I think about you because you're so kind and compassionate and wonderful I think you're just like Mother Teresa you're amazing but when you get in the parking lot you're like Roseanne Barr <laughs> on steroids okay okay and we can be friendly with people right around our row. We can be friendly with people, you know, that we meet in the lobby, and that's wonderful. We need to keep on doing that, but it needs to go deeper than that. We need to allow them at times into our lives, and that gets messy. So expand your sphere of relationships. Don't let your small group become us for and no more. Let's keep reaching out and be willing to take the risk to be a messy church. Let's be a bag of grapes, not a bag of marbles. Bag of marbles, I had a bag of marbles when I was a kid. Marbles just kind of clanged together and scratched on each other, but they didn't affect each other much. But you get a bag of grapes, whoo, they press together, they affect each other, some juice begins to flow out, whoo, That's a whole different ball game. Let's be a bag of grapes instead of a bag of marbles. And the final word is self-sacrifice. The bottom line for this good Samaritan is that he risked his own life for another. You know what sacrifice is? Sacrifice is giving up something you love for something you love more. And let's let God change us into a messy church that is willing to get involved in the lives of people who are far, far from God in some cases, and sometimes just struggling with some issue. Sometimes they're just going through a season of trial. Let's get involved, and let's become like a bag of grapes. Father, thank you for the story of the Good Samaritan. It's impacted millions through the years since Jesus our Lord spoke it. But I thank you that the message is just as relevant as ever. Help us to be a people who don't just play it safe, who don't just take the easy road, who are willing to get messy as we go about serving you and doing life together as the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Will the ushers please...